Welcome to episode 114 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in our COVID bunkers in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp, Swamp Flicks. Woo! <laughs> Swamp Flicks, woo! <laughs> like a little a ghost back there. Were you getting like towards like the ducktails? That's what I was going. Me for, too. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was like. Swamp flicks. Woo! Something we're solving some movie <laughs> mysteries. Or <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I like the idea that this podcast is haunted, though. Uh, <laughs> that appeals to me. Well, nothing's changed. I'm not even gonna pretend it has. So I'm just gonna go ahead and ask y'all, <laughs> what have you been watching? So I know y'all wrote about this on the website. But I watched it with Hana, uh, that movie Three Women, the Robert Altman. Mm. That is our movie of the month for August. It so is. we just posted about that this week. It's one of the best. Yeah. One of the best Since movies I'm ever. I'm not going to be able to write about it, obviously. I just want to say that I really, really liked that movie. It was really good. And then it reminded me, I was looking through some uh, other Robert Altmans, and I didn't realize that he directed this film called images i just watched that this afternoon i watched it probably two months ago and that movie tripped me out and like i don't know why i had this idea that robert altman was this kind of like stuffy for like adults you know like kind of boring films like these two films are like some of the weirdest trippiest things to come out of that time period He's a really fun man. Like I watched like a there's not that many interviews of him talking about three women, but like if you go on YouTube and try to find a few, like it's all, like just the way he talks about it, it really changes like the way you see him. Like he seems like a lot more on like the cooler side. Well, I just like I read, you know, that it all came to him in a dream, like literally mm-hmm. the entire film he just wrote it down. Yeah, I read a few interviews with him. He seems like a really cool guy. But uh yeah, I've kind of been on the Robert Altman kick ever since I saw Three Women. I think I want to kind of go back and watch everything. I would him. recommend that Cold Day in the Park for both of you guys. Y'all would both like that a lot. Is that the one? I think I've actually rented that from the library. Is it? Is that Al Pacino? No, it, no, that's Panic Park. Oh, okay. Where, <laughs> the other park. Park. Needle and Panic Park. Never mind. Another yeah. park. This one, it's about this woman, and she's kind of like a, a homebody and she's kind of young and beautiful and she spends all her time with this like crowd of like older people and she starts to make friends with this younger guy and she kind of traps him in her house <laughs> and it gets okay. really weird it's but it's it's good like it it gets under your skin in a very slow pace and it's very uncomfortable to watch in a in a great way so all right i'll add that one to the list I'm with James, though, in that I did not know he had this whole other, like, psychological thriller, like, horror side to his career. Like, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call his movies stuffy, but they're very, like, conversational and have these, like, ensemble cast with, like, 20 characters, like, like, overlapping Gosford Park. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, Nashville. Right. Oh, so he um, did do Gosford Park? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, that's more what I thought, because I've seen that one, and that's what I thought his style was. 
and then watching these two movies like yeah they're very strange i mean images is practically like an american version of a giallo film and then three women is kind of like his persona and it is chatty like his other movies because shelly duvall just rambles on and on the entire film and no one's listening to her but it goes to like a lot more cerebral like chilling just off-putting places i i was surprised that he had this whole other area to his career as well but i think i think his chattier movies are like the large cast are a lot more fun than you're giving them credit for even gosford park is like a murder mystery uh whodunit kind of like it's a lot more playful than i would call it stuffy well i think it's probably because i saw it when i was like 14 and obviously (laughs) obviously was not you know in a place to really appreciate it but yeah anyway just robert altman man I know y'all already did movie a month on it, but I just wanted to touch on how kind of blown away I was, especially that second half of the film after she Mm -hmm. jumps into the pool, how the personalities start meshing together. And is it all one person, different sides of one personality or like, I just thought it was super interesting. And I love the main thing about that movie is like, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just like a dream, like whatever, whatever you want to make of it. And I do uh, think Shelley Duvall deserves some praise because, like, that character is, like, so unlikable yet so compelling. I love her. <laughs> I found her, like, tragic. Yeah, I, yeah, I read, like, tragic. all of our yeah. responses from the movie of the month, and we were all into her. So I was really happy about that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, what about you, Brittany? What have you seen recently? So I finally got around to watching The Good Liar that came out last year. Um, with Ian McKellen and Helen Mirren. I don't think I've heard of that one. I saw it. It was one of the last like movies I saw in theaters, I think. And it was a preview to this movie. And I was like, God, I want to see that. And I just never got around to watching it. But basically, Helen Mirren, her husband's been dead for like a year. So she starts, you know, makes her little online dating profile. And she meets Roy, played by Ian McKellen. And he is essentially a con artist. So he is like trying to get himself into her life to get her money. So she's worth like about 2 million bucks. So he's trying to persuade her to make a joint account with him. And the plan is to somehow take all her money, whether it be steal it in some weird bank tech way that I don't understand or kill her and like inherit it, something it kind of goes in that direction and like her grandson becomes suspicious of Ian McKellen's character and questions him a lot. Like this takes place in England and they go on a trip to Berlin and then Ian McKellen's character responds to a German phrase that her, her grandson saying, and then he's like, Oh no, I don't speak German. I didn't know what you were saying. Like, so there's like weird little things like that that happen. And towards the end of the movie, the reveal it's like the truth of all this going on becomes this entirely different story, which I really thought was cool. Like it goes back into the history of world war two. And I I don't want to say too much more than that because it will give it away. Um, But it's really cool. I had a lot of fun watching it. I love Helen Mirren and I loved how the main people in this crime thriller mystery movie were very old which was awesome (laughs) you know like normally it's like you know these hot middle-aged or young sexy people but they were able to make it interesting and they were able to make it sexy without being super sexy 
they also sound like way overqualified for that kind of movie, uh, which is always fun. Yeah, it's like totally like quite the garbage plot, <laughs> and they're fantastic. So it's yeah. good. I really liked it. So other than The Good Liar, I've been trying to catch up on like 2020 movies and get a couple that I was kind of interested in seeing. So I watched the movie Seven Stages to Achieve Eternal Bliss by Passing Through the Gateway Chosen by the Holy Starsh. I believe the shortened version of that title is just step Seven Stages to Achieve Eternal Bliss. I wish I liked it. I didn't Oh, like it was it. horrible, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's nothing worse than a comedy that's not as funny as it thinks it is. Oh, it was so boring. And I love Kate Micucci. I just find her fascinating. Like, she has this weird humor to her. Taika Waititi's in it. Uh, There's a bunch of funny people in it. It's just not a funny movie somehow. Yeah, it's pretty lame. I mean, basically, it's about a couple that moved. They're like, I guess, a small town couple. They moved to L.A. And they find out that the apartment they're living in is used for suicides from this cult. Because their cult leader committed suicide in the bathtub and people just constantly break into their apartment and kill themselves in the bathtub. And then they eventually start like, you know, bonding with them and then helping them commit suicide. And then they kind of get pulled into the cult too. And it kind of sounds like it's cool, but it really isn't. Yeah, it's just kind of like disappointing how like how many funny people just kind of crash into the screen. Like <laughs> right. Maria Bamford will crawl into the window or one of the like kids in the hall will come in and you're like, oh, wow, finally some jokes are going to happen. And it doesn't. Yeah, nothing good. <laughs> so it's like a, like a movie 43 sort of situation. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> pretty, yeah. pretty similar. Not as like grotesque. Oh, no. But, yeah. Well, yeah. there's no balls on the chin. <laughs> no. <laughs> Gross. Um, and then one more movie I want to talk about that was shitty, but I enjoyed it. The movie Inheritance that also came out this year with Simon Pegg. I don't know that one. I haven't seen that. So it stars Lily Collins, Phil Collins' daughter, and Simon Pegg. So basically it's this movie about this really rich family and they have a lot of political power in New York and the father of this family dies. And when he dies, his wealth is split. His son gets $20 million and his daughter, played by Lily Collins, gets only like one million bucks and she gets a jump drive. That holds this family secret that she's responsible for. So she puts the jump drive in, watches the video, and finds out that there's a bunker underneath her family's property. And there is a man who's been kept prisoner there for 30 years. And that man is played by Simon Pegg. (laughs) Hmm. So a lot of the movie you're trying to figure out like why, like she's trying to figure out like, why does my dad have this man in here? Do I believe what he's telling me? Do I let him go? Like, what do I do? So you're kind of, there's kind of like a lot of mystery around it. And there's a cool twist at the end. That's, that's okay. It just takes too long to get there. And I think I would have liked to see this ending twist where you find out who he really is kind of more towards the middle and have like the rest of the movie play out post that which didn't happen, but it was cool. It was interesting seeing Simon Pegg in a scary role. He was not funny at all. He was kind of the serious character and it, it wasn't good. Like it wasn't awesome, but it was a, like a fun thing to watch, like with some spare time that we, you know, we all have a, a little bit extra time now. So I think it's worth watching. It's just not awesome. Have you seen come to daddy with Elijah? Wood? I watched it last night. <laughs> 
it's pretty similar in premise, right? It's not that far off. Oh, you're oh my god, you're right. Except Come to Daddy, I thought was ten times better. Oh uh, yeah, that movie is wild. It's so great. Uh, and it's written by uh, one of the people who wrote The Greasy Strangler. Mm-hmm. So it has that like really grotesque like Yeah, it's disgusting. Cruelty to it. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. So yeah, I never really put them together, but they are very similar. Except that one's, you know, Come to Daddy is way better. Even though I hate saying that title out loud. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but yeah, cool. So that that's pretty much a good chunk of what I've been watching. So what about you, Brandon? What have you been watching? Well, actually, your Holy Storch slam was reminding me of another comedy I watched recently called Extraordinary, mm. which is uh, free on Hoopla right now. And it's got a similar like Taika Waititi's type humor to it set in like a horror comedy context. Uh, it's about this like woman who is a driving instructor in Ireland, and she's like really meek. And, like, doesn't like a lot of attention and eats her, like, hungry man dinners alone in her apartment. Ooh, that sounds so hot. <laughs> <laughs> but she has this past as a spiritual medium for ghosts that she doesn't like to return to because of some horrible accident in her past. And she gets pulled out of hiding because Will Forte is playing this rock and roll asshole who is, like, going to summon the devil to get famous. That sounds like right up his alley. <laughs> oh, yeah. He gets to have a lot of fun awesome. going over the top. But it's just this really funny comedy about this, like, kind of milk toast woman who can communicate with ghosts. And she falls in love with this guy whose daughter is going to be sacrificed to the devil. But in order to stop the ritual, she has to, like, have these ghosts inhabit his body. And every time he does it, he like pukes up this like semen looking ectoplasm. Uh, so like they're having this like kind of cute rom-com exchange with all this like disgusting ectoplasm, like coming out of him. Uh. I don't know if, if you want to know comedy, like Holy Storch, I thought extraordinary was a little better in the same kind of tone. Okay. It's not as funny as Capone though, which I watched recently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that movie. It is a bad film. Like, as far as dialogue or like acting metaphors. But it's got Tom Hardy, though. Tom Hardy is so fun in this movie. He's fun, but do you think he's supposed to be? Or you think he's just pulled like a Nicolas Cage? I think that he and Army Hammer are in a competition to become the next Nicolas Cage. Mm. And I think all three of those men are know exactly what they're doing. So basically, this is Tom Hardy playing Al Capone in the last year of his life. He's like 48 years old, but he looks like he's like twice that. Uh, He's got these like bloodshot eyes (laughs) and he's demented from syphilis. So he can barely speak. He sounds like a talking garbage can. He's like, (laughs) he basically pisses shits and pukes himself for the entire (laughs) film. And you watch him sort of slip in and out of his memories. Like he can't keep track of where he is in the timeline of his life. And the director, Josh Trank, his last movie, that fantastic four film from like five years ago, like basically ruined his career. And this was supposed to be his like comeback. And it's basically completely useless except for watching Tom Hardy go full Nick cage for the entire 90 something minutes. And it is hilarious. It is like everything you want out of an over the top performance from somebody's just let loose. Which is something Tom Hardy did for Venom as well. Another boring movie that he made great uh, just from overachieving. Hell yeah, dude. I, I'm a huge Tom Hardy fan, so I definitely need to see this. I pretty much it's like on everything he's done. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I laughed a lot when I watched it. And <laughs> Me too. 
and I felt bad because it's like, oh, that really happens to like old people. But it was just funny the way that he did it. Where he just made it so disgusting, like just so gross, like just the drool coming out of his face, this like gross voice, and he was trying so hard to be gross. Yeah, and I think it's I think <laughs> it's somewhat cool. on purpose. Like you're right. There's gags where he's dressed in drag. He's like shooting guns at alligators and singing the uh, the cowardly lion song from Wizard of Oz. Like it feels like Nick Cage type stunts. And I think some of it's intentional. I don't know if that was just him or if the director was in on it or not, but anything that had anything to do with like themes or like a reason to tell the story, it thinks it's like the Irishman and like the way it's like reflecting on like a mobster's life of violence, but it, it has nothing going on in its head. Uh, it's all it's all about the stunts. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, things that have nothing going on in their head, we are talking about being there today. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a great segue, Brandon. Oh man, I tried. <laughs> uh, actually, our general theme today is great movie endings. This was something that James came up with. So I think we're going to talk about being there for a little bit, and then maybe take a break and come back and talk about its ending specifically. And then me and Brittany are going to talk about our favorite movie endings as well. Yeah. So if you're really paranoid about this movie from literally 40 years ago being spoiled, you can stop listening when we take a break. But the general topic today is like what makes a good movie ending, which led us to very different places. None of these movies really have anything to do with each other. Not at so this all. This should be an interesting talk. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Who are you talking as now? Somebody told me you have no voice. Time Magazine's cover story insisted that there is no Peter Sellers, that you are only a, a mass of characterizations, and that inside there is no body. That's true, yes. How did, how did you react to that? Well, uh, I, I didn't react. Uh, I just mouthed things. <laughs> this is not entirely true. It comes from working for years in radio, Gene. Who am I talking to now? Uh, let me see. Uh, he's not in, I'm sorry. <laughs> and now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And this was James's turn to pick. Uh, what did you make us watch today? I made y'all watch Being There, which is a Peter Sellers, who I'm a big fan of, but I... For some reason, I've never seen this movie. Peter Sellers' movie that came out in, I think, 1979. And it's pretty highly regarded. And again, it's just one of those things. I, for some reason, I've just never seen it. And I randomly decided to watch it one day and absolutely fell in love with this movie. The story is pretty simple because it's about a simple-minded man. So the main character is this guy, Chance. You could call him a simpleton... He really just doesn't have a whole lot going on upstairs. He's a middle-aged man who lives in the house of this uh, wealthy guy. And it's in Washington, D.C. And he's basically the gardener. His life pretty much revolves around watching TV all day and gardening the plants. And one day, his the guy that owns the house dies. And he's basically put out on to the streets of D.C., the ghetto, essentially. And he's just kind of roaming around, not really thinking about anything. He brings his clicker with him, and in a really funny scene with a group of muggers come up to him to try to rob him, he just points the clicker at him to try and change the channel. So that'll give you some idea of like where this guy's head is at. And by a series of, of luck and good fortune... He ends up being taken in by this extremely wealthy couple who have very 
big connections in Washington. So the, essentially the movie is his like kind of rise to power. And it's sort of this satire on American media and social power because every line of dialogue in this movie, you have these like very powerful rich men and the, you know, the president and they're all talking to chance the gardener, but they hear it as Chauncey Gardner, which is like this very waspy, you know, and he wears these nice suits and he carries himself in sort of this dignified way, but he's a complete idiot. And throughout the movie, people are having conversations with him, asking his opinion about policy and really important governmental things. And he gives these very like quaint sort of, you know, relating everything to watering the plants. And <laughs> and, and it's just so funny to see these people take him as being this very wise, just interesting, smart, funny guy when essentially there's none of that actually going on there. He's basically like a blank person that people are projecting what they want to hear onto. And it's a really great satire about essentially all you need to really make it in this world is not, it's not anything about who you are. It's how people perceive you and, Mm -hmm. you know, what you look like and do you have the right connections with the right right people. And he essentially towards the end of the movie is in a position to become the president of the United States. That's mm-hmm. how far this thing goes. I thought it was hilarious. Shirley MacLaine is in here as well as the wife of, you know, this rich billionaire that he's living with. And she's hilarious. And it's also like extremely thought provoking. And what I think what I also appreciate about it is, you know, when we talk about satire, usually it's something like, you know, something like a Mel Brooks, I guess, like a, kind of a broad satire. But this is like a very smart satire with a lot to say and then as we'll talk about in the next segment there's the ending which i think takes things to even deeper places so anyway i really enjoyed this movie what what did you guys think about it um i liked it i thought it was like really funny and i i love the way that like peter sellers kind of sold this character to us <laughs> he was just really good as being that lovable, like, goofy, empty-headed person. (laughs) This is kind of the perfect movie for him, right? Mm Because one of the common things you'll hear about him, and I actually pulled a few clips from the episode where people were saying this in interviews to his face, but is that he doesn't really have a personality. Because he always does, like, these roles where you sort of lose him. He's not like a Tom Cruise type where you get, like, the same performance every time. So he's like a blank slate of a character, and then in this movie in particular, he's not doing any inflections on anything. He's just like completely blank. There's just nothing there. And it's really funny hearing him say things like, I understand. I know exactly what you mean. When he doesn't comprehend anything anyone means, he's just nothing. And uh, people like love to bounce back their own ideas and hear them back on themselves uh, off of him. He fought really hard to play this character after reading the novel. And it just makes so much sense that he would be that obsessed with it because it it really just fits his whole persona as we know it. And I think, too, what kind of jumped out at me watching this in 2020 is I couldn't help but think about the state of politics and of Mm -hmm. Trump, where really politics has come to be about, like, you know, sound bites, these sort of vague claims and promises and geared towards this, like, short attention span 
audience, which Trump embodies all those, but mm-hmm. so does Chauncey Gardner in this. And that's where I think the satire is so brilliant is showing like these powerful politicians like don't have as much going on upstairs. Mm-mm. They just know how to like gear people's perceptions about them. I think that's true to a point like Trump, instead of talking about like cybersecurity, he'll say like, we need to have the cyber. Like he, he kind of mm-hmm. uses these sort of like blank phrases without getting into particulars. And people love it. And they read into it. Yeah. But I, I do think he has an ideology though. Like he's coming from this like extreme right wing point of view. Whereas I don't think Chance has a point of view in any way, except that he likes to watch TV. That's like his one stance. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, obviously this was 79, but if right. you, if you think back to like every politician since I've been alive, even politicians I like, like Obama, it's a certain way of speaking. It's again, like the soundbite, the way to condense seemingly like complicated ideas into easy to understand mm-hmm. language. And I do think, Chauncey Gardner sort of he's great at politics in this movie because he is the perfect like mirror like whatever you want to see in him yep is what you're going to see and I do think that's what great politicians do Mm -hmm. like everything that said is just this very simple statement and you can make a million different assumptions from it so it makes a million different people happy yeah and and people love that like you know, there have been times where, like, you know, I'll be having conversations with people and I, like, won't say anything for a very long time. They're like, wow, you're so, like, you really get me. <laughs> and I'm like, I just haven't been saying shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, people like that, though. They think that <laughs> the more kind of, like, simple you talk and just, you know, interjecting, like, a very general statement every now and then, <laughs> they eat yeah, that shit up. <laughs> they do. But I think... There's something about Peter Sellers' performance in this that's great. And, like, there is some something, like, very sweet about him. Like, he's playing a dimwit, but kind of like a dimwit with this, like, heart of gold. It's kind of hard to balance those two. And I think he does a great job in this where you can kind of understand why people gravitate towards him. I think part of it is that there's no real world corollary to what he is. Like when they tried to remake this with Forrest Gump, for instance, like Forrest Gump is kind of a dimwit in a way that has like a real life medical corollary. Like there are people who have that IQ level that we recognize in the real world, but like Chauncey's almost like this like supernatural being. Like you can almost come up with a backstory where like he's the bastard child of the rich man he lived with. Ah. But at the same time, it works just as well as you just think of him as this creature that appeared out of nowhere and has nothing going on. It's not like he's like playing mentally disabled. He's playing just this blank slate of a nothing of a character. Like if E.T. came in the form of Chauncey and just like right. was gardening and then the TV taught him everything. <laughs> he's just as real as E.T. is yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and they, in the movie, they never explain where he actually came from. You know, it, some point after he talks to the president, they actually try to do a background check and they can't find anything on this guy. It's literally like he just came out of thin air. And that does add a certain like mystique. Ooh, what if he's like AI? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I think he's just like mostly a device. Like I think he's something that um, Jersey Kaczynski, the, the novelist created, who exists only to comment on 
you know, how we read into things that are basically just vague platitudes and how we, we hear what we want to hear, you know? Mm-hmm. He's not a real person, which I, I think really did attract Peter Sellers to that role, and he plays it wonderfully. Like, I don't think anyone else could have done this half as well as him. Which, like, that made me think about one of the things I didn't like in this film. And I'm not talking about the ending, but there's, like, a credits. A blooper a reel. A blooper reel where it basically, you see Peter Sellers, like, laughing, like, you know, not hitting his lines and... It's very bizarre that this whole movie, he has done such a great job of being this character. And then as the movie is over, you see him as his real self. And apparently he was like even upset by that. He did not want them to include the blooper reel and they did anyway. I just thought that was a totally bizarre choice. It's especially weird since this is like a very dry comedy. It kind of takes you a minute to get where the humor is coming from if you haven't seen it before. So you would think they would want some kind of signifier like that up front. Like if you're going to say like, this is a comedy, it's okay to laugh. You would want that somewhere in the first hour at least, but to include it after the movie to be like, Hey, it was okay if you laughed during this like dry satire. Um, Cause it was intentional for this to be funny. Like to include that after the credits is a very odd choice. Uh, and I don't know what they were trying to achieve with that. Yeah. I just like to think that it doesn't, it's not part of the movie at all. I just turn it off after the final scene. Yeah, the credits were weird for me. I didn't give in to them. I didn't watch them that much because it, it threw me off too much. You are right, though. Like, the movie took me a while to get to. Like, I'd say the first 20 minutes or so when he's still in the house, I, I wasn't quite on board. And then as soon as he goes outside into the real world, I just started, like, just laughing uncontrollably because that scene where he's just like walking the streets of DC after being cooped up in this house for 40 something years, that's when it finally clicked. And then, and when someone pulls a knife on him, he tries to change the channel with the TV remote he brought out with him. It like has no understanding of the world that doesn't revolve around TV watching, uh, which is pretty great. Well, that is weird though. Cause like he does watch TV. So he has to know about like, even if someone were to, stay inside all day and watch TV their whole life. They still wouldn't be as like dim as he is. I don't think it's dim. It's just a different version of reality. Like you remember room that kid had like those like Mm. TV world concepts about how the universe is like different planets connected by TV channels. Like it would just be warped, you know, he's like the grown man version of the room kid. (laughs) Exactly. What's going on. With a much swankier wardrobe. Oh, yeah. That room kid's wardrobe sucked. (laughs) But this was like one of my favorite movies in high school for some reason. Like I had the VHS to this. I used to watch it a lot. And I think that like aspect where it takes a while for you to adjust to what's funny about it and what its satirical target is maybe made it more attractive to me at the time because it made me feel smart. Probably smarter than I actually was. Y'all don't even watch being there, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you feel like a little sophisticated when yes. I was like 17 years old. I mean, I, you say that, but like Shirley MacLaine, especially there's some scenes in here where it's just straight slapstick, you know, with the, their sex scene and, and all that. So, which I really enjoyed the whole, I like to watch thing. <laughs> Shirley MacLaine in here reminded me a lot of her character in Miss Winterborn, where she's very optimistic about everything. I don't know. Like she's kind of just, oh, well, that sounds great. That's how it is, I guess. Wow, great. Yeah, and at first I was kind of 
on the fence about like why would she fall for Chauncey? And then as their relationship sort of developed, I don't know, it kind of made sense. I think her character, like, you know, living with this dying old man, you know, just wanted to be with somebody that would, you know, like to be in her company. Well, and he's filling a role in everyone's life. Like the guy who's selling the property he lives on needs this like person who can be bowled over easily. And he fills that role. The president needs this like talking point that Chauncey just sort of like pulls out of nowhere and he fills that role for him. And then, you know, Shirley MacLaine needs basically like a flesh and blood sex toy, which he ends up being for her. Yeah. He's just there filling in whatever role people need because he has nothing of his own desire or intent to get in anyone's way. He's yeah. just like a puzzle piece. You can fit in anywhere. It's, it's pretty magical. That's why I think of him more like as a supernatural being than like a, uh, than a simpleton. <laughs> I don't know. On that note, I think it would be a good time to talk about the ending. Uh, you know, I, I just love all your wild characters, Peter. But, you know, backstage here, you can just relax and be yourself. Mm-hmm. But that, you see, my dear Kermit, would be altogether impossible. I could never be myself. Uh, never yourself? No. You see, there is no me. I do not exist. I, I beg your pardon? There used to be a me. Mm-hmm. But I had it surgically removed. So James brought up being there in particular, or at least to lead to a larger topic, just talk about great movie endings. I want to hear, because I think there is room for interpretation, what happens at the end of this movie and also just like why you think it is an example of a great movie ending. Like what made you think of that as like a topic around this film? Yes. We were just talking about like Chauncey. And I think what made me want to do this segue is Brandon bringing up that he has this like magical, almost you could say maybe religious quality to him. And at the end of the movie, the very last scene, there's a eulogy being said for the billionaire he had lived with that passed away. And he goes out near this like pond and he literally walks on water. Now, I know some people have interpreted like, oh, he could have been, you know, the water could have been really shallow or something like that. But he puts his umbrella in the water and you see like, no, he is literally walking on water. And the very last line of the eulogy as this is happening is, you know, life is a state of mind. And as soon as that line was said, I'm looking at this image, Chauncey on like on the water, Christ-like. And this is the reason I think it's a fantastic ending is like that one scene and that one line change. It didn't change my interpretation of the film, but that one scene deepened everything. And then just all these like thoughts and feelings started flooding in. And I was just like, wow, that's how you end a movie where you can, like one image recontextualizes the entire film and makes you think about the entire film in a different way. It was masterful. And I guess my interpretation is like, I take it at face value that he did walk on water. But I also think what it's really getting at, you know, it's a metaphor. And I tie it in with that line, life is a state of mind. And how Chauncey is limitless because he doesn't know his own limitations. I think that's where the greater wisdom comes in that I hadn't really picked up on before is like, if you are totally unaware 
of you know what you can accomplish and all this stuff you can accomplish a lot more than if you're constantly like kind of in your own head which Chauncey mm-hmm. is like definitely not I also was thinking about it in the religious way too yeah that's unavoidable and I think that like what I took from it is religious leaders and political figures the great ones the Jesus Christ the mm-hmm. Martin Luther Kings they're special because in the exact same way that Chauncey is, they are a blank canvas that you can project all this meaning onto. And the last thing it also made me think was, we are how we're perceived. Essentially, like in this world, like we don't know actually what it is like to be on the other side of us, talking to us, looking at us. And our entire life is like these perceptions that we'll never know. And we're constantly like in fear about how people perceive us, you know, did I sound stupid? Do I look good? Do I look this way Mm -hmm. or that? And the fact that Chauncey has none of that allows him in some way to reach this crazy level of power that he has no right being at. He's not burdened by all the like psychological, like babbling that goes on in all of our heads all the time. Yeah. He has nothing of that going on up there. He just has TV shows. Yeah. And so, so again, like just that one scene brought all this out. And I thought that that was beautiful and thought provoking and um, totally put the film like over the edge for me. Wow. That's like real deep. And I didn't pick up on that, but it makes a lot of sense now that you explained it. (laughs) What were you thinking when it happened? I thought that he was really like an alien. and. Well, I think like Brandon said, like he could be <laughs> like a like magical creature. Like we don't, like I said, don't know how he's born. We don't know where he came from. I mean, that's kind of like an immaculate yeah. conception <laughs> Jesus story. So right, I think that's right. totally valid to take it that way. I don't mean it as literally as that. Like I think he's just as real as a magical creature. Like I don't think he's a real person in this screenplay. Like he's surrounded by real people. But he's just like, he's like a literary device. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think like, <laughs> this was my first time ever seeing it. So I think rewatching it again, I would think differently. But I, for some reason, I just kept expecting something to beam him up. Like at the <laughs> end, like I'm like, he's going to keep walking on water and then something's just going to suck him back up to space. Back to his home planet. Back to his home planet. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's valid. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. as valid as any other reading because there's no answer to it, which is part of the reason why it's fun to pick apart. I think I used to think of it more as like a Jesus metaphor about how like his empty mindedness was like a divine quality that mm-hmm. he had. But I mm-hmm. think about it more now. It's just funny thinking about how like much effort people put into like not thinking like uh, I'm thinking of like mindfulness um, meditation type stuff where you're just trying to be present in it's your body and just so feel hard. sensations and not let thoughts, you know, interrupt that like being present in your body's feeling. I do think Chauncey is like a model of mindfulness. He's not stuck in the past. He's not thinking about the future. He's just there in the moment with his TV or with whoever he's having a conversation with. And, you know, the title of the film being there. Life is a state of mind. That That's all like kind of this Buddhist mentality. I do like the idea that the honest thing that we would all be saying if we had that level of mindfulness is, I just want to watch TV. Like, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. No. I find that very funny. I find that like, I don't know, like I've been watching way more TV than usual since this started. Me so too. I felt more 
you know, familiar with Chauncey because, like, I watch a lot of, like, garbage, too. And, like, I'm every Real Housewives franchise, I'm on it. 90 Day Fiance, all the spinoffs, I'm on it. So it's like, I feel like these people are part of my life. <laughs> so, like, I'll be talking in conversation and I'm like, whoa, that was in an episode. I'm just talking, I'm just saying it. Like it was, it's like, it gets stored in my head and then it comes out into real conversation and then no one knows that it's where it's coming from. So I felt a lot like Chauncey. <laughs> and that, that is the way that he interacts with people is just like, he's watching another TV show. He's just like quoting yeah. from TV and yeah. I understand. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. <laughs> I do think it's worth mentioning just at the same time that he's walking on water, though, we're hearing these like whisperings of, you know, the deep state powers that really control things from behind the scenes, setting him up for the next presidency. Like, it's not like those two things are separate. They're like happening simultaneously. <laughs> what if there's a story of um, uh, George W. Bush? <laughs> just this like or very president. empty minded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I think that's kind of interesting, too, because, like, it does lead to some conspiracy theory stuff. Out of nowhere, my boss, who has this very bad tendency of going down YouTube rabbit holes, Mm. uh, was telling me about this movie um, that he, like, just discovered and that Kubrick had secretly directed it because apparently he was, like, a buddy of Ashby's and might might have been a producer on this. I'm not sure. But um, Kubrick secretly directed this to talk about the powers that be behind American institutions and like the scene where where they're like carrying the casket of the uh, old man up the steps. It's to this like pyramid, which is that like Illuminati symbol, Illuminati bullshit. Yes. And, you know, there's an earlier scene where um, Chauncey is at a store and there's like a moon landing set with like a TV camera. Uh, which is also supposed to be a Kubrick reference. And I think there's like a uh, funky remix of 2001 A Space Odyssey's theme mm-hmm. at the beginning. Oh. I think all of that's absolutely fucking insane. But <laughs> I do I do think it's funny how like that's just a continuation of this movie being like you be able to project all this meaning onto this like sort of blank character. And I do think the movie encourages it a little bit because it's talking so much about American politics and like pop culture stuff. So, I don't know. It's funny to me that, like, 40 years later, people are still, like, reading very specific answers into this, like, puzzle of a movie. I think that's a pretty good sign that the ending has a power to it. And the other two movies we're going to talk about, I think, have great endings for totally different reasons. (laughs) You know, but (laughs) but I do think that this is, for me, like, one way a movie can end great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what I really like is movies where you leave kind of questioning what you saw. What does it mean? You can think about it for a while. And for that particular kind of movie, this to me is like the perfect one of those sort of endings. So Brittany, Mm -hmm. what did you pick? Oh, and also what is it about the ending of the film that made you think of that as like an example of like a great movie ending? Cause like James was just saying, we picked things that were like entirely different from being there. Well, I picked um, the movie uh, Perfume, the story of a murderer from 2006. I love this movie so much. And it the ending of this film just really stuck with me. Um, I saw it in theaters and it was just this jaw-dropping experience where I wasn't like going, oh my God, I was just so silent and so hypnotized 
by the entire ending segment of this movie. So yes, so I guess I'll explain a little bit about Perfume. So it is based on a novel from Patrick Susskind, which I have not read yet. So there's probably a lot more to the story that is portrayed in the novel, even though this movie is like two and a half hours long. So actually, Brittany, I, I wanted to say I have read this book ah. and it is very faithful to the book. Like, yes. if you like the movie, you will love the book. Which is ambitious, right? To adapt a book that's about smell into, into a, like a visual piece. Yeah. And like, I, I do think the film does a good job of making it very fun to look at. But the writing, the way he describes smells in the book is just so, so fantastic. So I would definitely yeah. recommend yes. reading the book too. It's been on my like to read list for years, like ever since I was like, you know, listening to In Utero from Nirvana. <laughs> and I'm like, Sitless Apprentice, this is from a book. I need to read it. <laughs> and I never did. And also, it reminded me a lot of um, <laughs> Polyester. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, I mean, and look, Polyester came out in 81 and um, the book was written in 85. So could have been a little bit influenced from John Waters. I don't know. I would watch a version of Perfume with Divine in the leading role. I, I think that... <laughs> Divine Grinwee and an Odorama card to go with the fish market shit. would <laughs> be great. But yeah, I, I just think this movie is just so beautiful visually. And like y'all were saying, like, you know, how hard is the idea to take this book, make it into a movie, and at the same time, try and convey what scent is like through visuals like it's you know and they this movie does a great job of using you know sounds and imagery for you to really understand what like everything smells like which i love but yes so this it takes place in 18th century france and uh jean baptiste grenouille is this kid born born in a fish market he was supposed to be like a stillbirth he lives gets thrown to an orphanage then gets thrown out of the orphanage, works in a tannery, and then makes his way to going to the city. And he is obsessed with scents. So when he goes into the city, he's overwhelmed with all these new fragrances. And then he starts working with a perfumer played by Dustin Hoffman, who I thought was so good in this movie. He is uh, Giuseppe Baldini, this like famous Italian perfumer. And Grinwee is like trying to learn how to preserve scent. He wants to capture scent of like things like glass. And the main point of the story is people. He becomes obsessed with the way that certain people smell and he wants to find a way to capture their fragrance and their scent. So he kind of studies under Giuseppe Baldini and leaves to go to Grasse in France where he's going to study to determine how to like capture the scent of humans like he thinks like that's like his next step in his journey and while he's on his journey there he kind of goes through this period where he's in a cave by himself and that's where he discovers that the reason that you know people kind of feel very uncomfortable around him and he doesn't have anyone in his life is that he he has no scent and yeah so then he makes his way to, to Grasse and he starts figuring out ways to um, get the scent of human beings. And he uses it through like this process of putting animal fat and then taking that animal fat 
and like boiling it down to making it into an oil. And then he goes on a murder spree and starts killing people. So all these women are being found, shaved, and wrapped up in this like, you know, burlap where they were being preserved. And um, then there's like sort of a manhunt out for this crazed killer and he gets found and this is like kind of where the ending comes into play where he's gonna be hung and he's in the middle of a square and it's got tons of people like hundreds and hundreds of people are waiting to see him die because he's caused so much you know fear among this community but he has this bottle of perfume that he used all the fragrances from all his victims. So there's like 13 cents of humans in this like perfume bottle. And when he goes out to the square, he like takes one drop of it and fans it out. And everybody, like these hundreds and hundreds of people just start participating in an orgy. This is the ending essentially, like where the ending starts. And that's that part when I first saw this where I was just like, what is happening? And I didn't know what to say, how to act, what to do, how to breathe. I was just taking it all in. And um, he realizes in that moment that he essentially has the power to rule the world with this perfume that he's created. And it hits him that even though he has this power and he can make people worship him with it, that he will never have anyone truly love him and he will never know how to truly love somebody else. So he goes back to the fish market where he was born, pours the whole bottle over himself and gets devoured by all the people at the fish market. So there's this great cannibalism ending too. So the ending of this movie just is this gorgeous orgy where you have people of all ages and body shapes and you know everybody's fucking and everybody's naked and they're all fucking each other and it's it's kind of beautiful and then after that is the cannibalism (laughs) it really is a one-two punch yeah it's just to me this was like the most memorable ending of a film the craziest ending of a film that I could think of. And it's, it, I still think about it until this day, like all the time. <laughs> like when I spray my perfume before I, you know, go on with my day, I think of, you know, the orgy. Is it like the surprise of it or like how far it went or what it means with the rest of the story? Like what, what in particular? I think it's how far it goes, especially like, you know, it's a two-parter where you think, okay, wow, an orgy. What other fucking movie has this? And then it gets pushed even further with this like cannibalism scene, you know, and it is a beautiful ending with the story because like he got what he wanted, but it's not really what he needed (laughs) and he can never get what he needs. And he realized that. And I felt so much closure whenever he was, you know, cannibalized where I'm like, you know, I mean, that's probably the best thing he could have done. Going to, Catholic high school, I couldn't help but think of you know the body and blood of Christ, and he becomes this mm. like angel yes. Christ like figure, and then he literally lets his followers like eat his flesh. So mm-hmm. we have two uh, Jesus allegories with this and being there. Yeah, I saw oh, wow. a little bit of a correlation there, but yeah, that ending is definitely like a great one two shocker. And it's kind of nice because he went back to like where he came from to do it. There's just something beautiful about that. There's another thing, though, that, like, really distinguishes him from Chauncey Gardner, though, in that 
Chauncey Gardner has no effect on the world, positive or negative. He's just there being. No. Um, whereas the guy in the perfume, like he is a murderer, a serial killer, something of a misogynist. Like he follows these women around and then kills them so that he can possess an essence of them. So it's really interesting to see him turn into a Christ figure at the end. Mm-hmm. I think that's like something that turned a lot of people off on this movie. Like you'll see two complaints about it. This is a movie that has a 59% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I'm surprised by because everyone around my age really likes it. So uh, I remember when it came out, it was pretty popular among my friends in college, at least. Mm-hmm. And the two complaints you'll see is one, that it is style over substance and that the movie isn't really saying much of anything. It's just very pretty, which to me, that's a positive. I always love style over substance. I think that's great. <laughs> uh, like that's my favorite kind of movie is style over substance. That's not a problem. The other complaint is that it is glorifying this like misogynist killer and like making him look like this sympathetic heartthrob character. Yeah. Which I didn't there pick might be something on to that. that. I felt like he it was almost like these women are so beautiful and their you know their sin is overpowering him and he's just trying to capture that. You don't think that's playing into like some kind of trope about young men not being able to control themselves around the like young beauty of women? I guess a little. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I just never looked at it that way. I just thought like, I mean, he's just a fucking killer. <laughs> like I'm like, this guy's just crazy. That's actually what like what bothered me watching it. Like that first scene where he's following the girl and he's just smelling her and he's like creeping up behind her. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Yeah. And it's like. I'm supposed like I get that he's like an anti-hero, but even anti-heroes, you want to sympathize with him a little bit. And after that first scene, I'm just like, man, this guy's just like a total creep. Well, he's a mo- I mean, he's just a monster. He's a monster yeah. <laughs> from, the, yeah. from the moment he's born. I mean, his little when he gets his baby hand and pulls that kid's finger to his nose, it's like, holy shit, this thing is crazy. <laughs> but it's like Hannibal Lecter is a monster, but he's like an interesting monster that you know. I think what carried me through this movie was the visuals. I thought it was yeah. like really awesome to look at, especially the the very early scenes where they're showing the just the gross, like the maggots and just the <laughs> stench of Paris. It's the <laughs> filthiest opening to a movie ever. Oh, yeah, I love all that stuff. And then later on, you know, it just had a really good visual style that I appreciate. I think. Where it kind of left me longing was, yeah, having to care about this main character in some way. Like, I was actively rooting against him towards the end where I'm like, please let this guy get caught. And then, you know, he turns into the angel-like figure. And I guess, yeah, I felt a little conflicted about that. But um, to me, it was all visual style for this movie that made it. I think something else that saves it, too, besides the style is, like, the narration turns it into this sort of like fairy tale. Yeah. (laughs) Where I feel like that separates it from having to have a moral. Like some fairy tales are just stories. Like sometimes they're, you know, specifically built to tell kids not to wander into the woods or talk to strangers and they have like a clear intent, but sometimes they're just these like fucked up tales where terrible things happen and they sort of just get passed along. And the way the movie's sort of narrated constantly, like a storybook and the way that kind of like Chauncey Gardner, again, he's like this just sort of supernatural creature walking among human beings. I don't know. I think that saves it a little bit. The fact that he's like not just a normal mm-hmm. guy. Like he has this like supernatural ability and this like supernatural lacking in the fact that he doesn't have his own scent. 
um, sort of makes him this creature that's sort of a blank slate in his own way. I do think it would have helped too if it was a little bit shorter. I mean, Agreed. it is like two and a half hours long. I loved every minute. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? And I bitch about long movies all the time, which is why I like this one. Because I'm like, I don't know what the fuck it's doing to make me love sitting here for like almost three hours. <laughs> like, but it's doing something right. Like, I just found it to be so, I don't know. I wanted more almost at the end. Like, I loved that post, you know, him being cannibalized. Everyone forgets about him. Everyone. Like, nobody wants to talk about him anymore. Like, his legacy is done. I think they agree to forget him. Right. I think, I, I think they remember the fact that they all fucked each other and nobody wants to acknowledge that they had, like, a moment of pure right. ecstasy together. So he's not yeah. going to be known except for, like, tall tale. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it, it was kind of like, you know, okay, this guy, this monster of a man died in the worst way possible and no one fucking talks about him. So he has no fame anymore. Nothing like he just literally had the, those like two second, you know, the, the two minute orgy or whatever. You know, what's really funny about the length is that I remembered this being one of Alan Rickman's best roles. Oh, so good. And then like over an hour into the movie, Alan Rickman had not shown up yet. And I'm like, did I imagine him? <laughs> <laughs> he comes Even later. This? He just yeah, looks yeah. a lot like Dustin Hoffman. I think <laughs> I thought I had confused the two men <laughs> like, in my okay. head. I just like, I, I loved Alan Rickman's role in here. Like he's such a good, like, you know, 18th century dad <laughs> for sure. I felt but conflicted about Dustin Hoffman. I to be honest. I think he's pretty bad in he's this. Bad, <laughs> really? I thought he was so good. <laughs> he's like a joke version of like a uh, Geppetto. Like he's got this ridiculous accent. But he's so much it's funny. fun. <laughs> Oh, it's definitely fun. It's <laughs> kind of like Robert De Niro as the gay pirate in uh, whatever movie well, that is. Yeah, yeah. I want to say yeah, when they were movie. casting this film, they were like, we need to get Dustin Hoffman for this role. Like, he was sought out. Well, you know what? Like, <laughs> in the beginning, because he, he's in the first part of the movie, right? So in the beginning, I was kind of like, oh, my God. Like, I can't deal with Dustin Hoffman right now. And then his, <laughs> you know, house literally falls into the water and he's dead. And then... Like an hour later, the movie was still going on. I was like, man, you know what? I kind of missed Dustin Hoffman. Like, I, I sort of reappreciated him as the, the movie went on because he did add a lot of like energy, mm -hmm. I guess. Yes. And he, yes, he was he like did. very entertaining, but he's hamming it up so hard. I think his death, too, is an interesting point in like contrast to the misogynistic murders. There are two types of murders that this perfumist apprentice uh, commits. One type is things that are not his fault. He like drifts through your life and then sort of by happenstance, as he leaves it and has no more use for you, you die by accident. The world just like conspires to kill you. He's just this cursed being. Right. And then there's also the type of death where he like strangles you to death because he wants to take in your scent because he wants to possess you. And I don't know how those two things communicate. Like, I don't know what the movie has to say about how those two things are related. Well, because he's so inhuman. Like, he's cursed and, like, he just doesn't care about anything except for scents and fragrances. And he'll go above and beyond to do whatever he needs. That's all he cares about in his life is just smelling shit. One thing I remember reading was that's kind of folklore about Satan is that Satan did mm. not have a smell. Oh. So I think there is a definite like 
satanic cursed element going on here. Yeah, like the thing I was saying, it's very satanic of him to just be selfish. He's a very selfish character where he doesn't care. He has no empathy for others, doesn't really give a shit about anybody else, just wants to do what he needs to do to get his fix and get what he wants. And then beyond that, um, Satan quality and the like body of Christ quality. He's also sort of roaming the earth, like marked like Cain too, Mm -hmm. where he like brings despair upon everything he touches. So there's like a lot of biblical sort of like stuff humming Mm -hmm. in the background. I don't know if that comes through stronger in the novel or not, but you definitely pick up on it here. I have a question for you, James, because you've read this novel. So the part in the film where he's in the square and everybody's fucking, well, when Alan Rickman's character goes up to him, at this point, he's the only one that hasn't been hit by this spell. Right. And he's like, oh, forgive me. In the book, doesn't he take him on as a son and he goes to live with him? Someone told me that. I'm like, that's kind of interesting. I kind of wish the movie would have gone to three hours and showed 30 minutes <laughs> of that. So th- I read this back in like college. So oh, over, shit, yeah. over 10 years ago, but... I definitely remember the orgy scene and the cannibalism scene. I do kind of remember that, though. Yeah, it, there's a period between those two things mm-hmm. where, yeah, I think they do go off together. And then he leaves him to go, like, get cannibalized to kill mm-hmm. himself. Yeah, right. I, I do remember that. That would have been so cool to see that, like, how that would have been. I, I mean, I think at, like, two and a half hours, I... The fact that I can't even really remember it means like it probably was an okay thing to cut. But I do see what you're saying, that it adds some like complexity to their, you know, their relationship and those characters. It's interesting. But, you know, when you're adapting it to film, stuff like that gets cut. It's just kind of like that moment to where he becomes, he gets that power. Like, it it seems so short-lived in the film. You know, like, it lasts just for that scene, and then Mm -hmm. that's it. Well, he obviously found it unfulfilling in some way. Like, even though everyone else was having the time of their life, he was just kind of like, oh, okay. This sucks. (laughs) I just want to smell some more stuff. Yeah, like, I just, like, what what was it like when he still had this, like, you know, angel-like power over everybody before he went and got himself killed? Like, that period... And you have the narrator sort of like chiming in there to say like all the things he could do with that power. Like he could go to the Vatican and become a new God. He could go to any government and take over the world more or less. Um, But he decides like it's pretty unfulfilling and he'd rather just not exist at all. Yeah. I mean, I I think in the book, you know, he goes back to Paris, but it's not like in the film, it's represented like this immediate thing. Like he walks Mm -hmm. into Paris that night, he goes and offers his body up. It's like an extended period of time where he's in Paris and he's kind of feeling unfulfilled and you know then he decides he's going to die where he was born so I think it's worth noting too that in being there the Chauncey walks on water sequence was not part of the book and Jersey Kaczynski the novelist wrote the screenplay for the movie too so the person who wrote the book added mm. that ending really to wow. the movie. that's super interesting yeah, and I, I think it works in a movie context where you can sort of like bring up these evocative images without having to explain them, <laughs> without like giving a concrete reason for why they're there uh, and have people like come up with their own interpretations. I, I could see how maybe he didn't think he could do that in the book as well. Um, and the book probably just ended with 
the powers that be just sort of chatting in the background about how Chauncey would be a great presidential candidate. There's something interesting there where, you know, that ending to being there is kind of playing into the strengths of film. And I do think the book version of Perfume, like literary, just language is better suited to describe smells, mm-hmm. you know, really flowery sort of language in a way that images can't really do justice. I think the film does a pretty good job at doing the best it can. But I think ultimately, when you're talking about these beautiful smells, I think language is the better route to go. Mm-hmm. I thought that the film did a good job, though, like as far as the film could go. I think out of every movie I've seen that any time a scent is trying to be conveyed, I would say like this and like polyester <laughs> tops, mm. you know, and I I think with perfume, a lot of it is with the vivid imagery and the music in the background. Like it gets, you know, heavier for heavier scents and a little lighter for like the floral notes and things like that. I just thought that was really cool how it, it was able to do this magic. And it makes you feel drunk during that orgy sequence as well. It kind of overwhelms you with this like romance uh, the yeah. music does. Uh, so you got kind of swept up in that orgy sequence and it, and it looks like a beautiful painting. Um, yes. All these just sort of writhing bodies. Like a, re- a beautiful Renaissance painting. Yeah, like it's awesome. <laughs> this is such like a minor complaint, but it's supposed to be this kind of, not asexual, but like anything goes sort of orgy men- you know, having sex with men and women, having sex with women. And in the movie version, like, you don't see any male-on-male sexuality. I was looking for it. There's a little bit, oh, but I it's definitely some. like... Yeah. I didn't yeah. see it. I saw women on women, women on men, obviously, but I could not find any man-on-man action. But I get that gist where everyone felt like they were, like, one. Like, they were all one. Like, everybody's just touching the next person while they're, like... Touching the other, like everybody was just all this big goop shunt of a human. Oh all no! Together, yeah, it felt yeah, like if, that. If you want to see the real depravity, you got to watch the society ending. Yes. <laughs> That's a good ending too. <laughs> that is a good one. That actually, yeah. that made me think of your choice, Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> you have the more society choice. <laughs> and I think that's like a good example, or at least the way I was thinking of that is like, what is my favorite kind of ending? Mm-hmm. That took me a minute to think about because I think the stuff y'all brought up works almost in the same way, even though they're very different endings. It's like an image, like a vivid image that changes the way you think about everything that came before it. Uh, maybe being there a little more so than Perfume. Perfume just sort of like goes there in a really exciting way. And to think about that, I have to think about like movie structure. Like what do I want in a movie? I think if you ask most people, their favorite movie endings would be something sort of like a Shyamalan ending right. or like a Nolan ending. Some sort of twist. Yeah, I didn't yeah. want to go there because that even when they're done well, it, it's kind of a gimmick. It feels a little mm-hmm. cheap. It's an answer to a question, which is not as interesting as like something raising more questions or like changing the way you think about stuff. I think both of y'all's examples are great things like... I'm thinking of like the Florida project or something where like the ending is this like really good emotional swell that just sort of like changes the whole like texture of the film. But I don't think that's what I really look for in movies. Like honestly, most times when I'm watching a film, I'm hoping they just don't fuck up the ending. That's like my main hope (laughs) is like, I'm really enjoying this. I think it's got great style. As long as it doesn't fuck up the ending, this is a great film. It's like my last thought for a lot of things, but there is this movie structure that I really like. 
where the movie starts at its like most normal. It's like baseline, mediocre, we've seen this before, familiar thing. And it gets more and more escalated in this like exponential trajectory where it gets more and more ridiculous. And then it ends at its most insane point. And then the credits hit and you're sort of left to deal with that feeling. And I don't know that this is the best example of that, but dead alive also known as brain dead from 1992. This is the first time I ever noticed that in a movie. I found this movie in high school. I guess this would have been after Peter Jackson had already started doing Lord of the Rings movies. I was never that into those. But I found this at Walmart for like $5. (laughs) And like it had a great cover of a a skull bursting through a woman's head. And I was like, okay, this looks like a gory zombie film. And it is. It it plays a lot like an Evil Dead type zombie movie. It doesn't have a great beginning. It has this sort of like racist depictions of like savages on Skull Island in this like King Kong throwback. And sort of starts like a normal zombie movie in New Zealand. It starts with like this guy Lionel. He is reclusive and lives in this like old dark house like a psycho type relationship with his mother who's very controlling and he's trying to keep that under wraps he wants to like go out and be more social and be his own person but he has this overdose of what the movie calls mother love holding him back from being (laughs) a fully realized adult and the more he tries to hold her back and keep her like psychological torment on him under wraps the worse it gets and the harder it is to control which becomes a very literal metaphor because his mother gets bitten by this like zombie virus. She gets bitten at the zoo while spying on his date by By a rat rat monkey. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the movie is just so gross. And I feel like that's what, what really spoke to me about it as a teen was just like how nasty it is. Like his mother literally decomposes and like oozes this like purple pus This movie has more pus than any other film I've ever watched in my life. People eat custards full of pusses and like decomposed ears. It's so gross. And that stuff happens early on and it's very like contained. Like this one woman's body is falling apart. And then it escalates from there where she infects other people. And he has to like keep like her collateral damage (laughs) under wraps. He has this circle of zombies in his basement tied up that he has to like keep injecting with tranquilizers to keep them from getting out and infecting more people. And then obviously that spirals further and further out of control, culminating in this party sequence where a bunch of like 1950s rockabilly types are roaming around his house drunk. And there's a big zombie breakout where I want to say at its culmination is him spinning in a circle with a lawnmower, just chopping up bodies. And it's like the most bloodshed you'll ever see in a movie. Just like rivers of just guts and body parts and intestines. And at that point, this movie is just Looney Tunes version of reality. Like (laughs) this isn't a normal zombie breakout movie. It's just like a live action cartoon. There's a zombified intestinal track that's wandering around the film and making cutesy faces and trying to strangle him with its like intestines. Like it's, it's just not even real anymore. Well, you know, what's funny about that too is apparently some countries decided to give it the equivalent of a PG 13 rating because they thought, because they thought that the gore was so cartoonish and over the top. Like why give this a hard R rating? You know what I mean? Like this is the kind of things that like kids would love. And I kind of, think that that is true as gory as it is like it feels like a pg-13 it's just so ridiculous like how can you take this seriously 
and it, I think it meant the most to me as a teenager. Like even revisiting it now, I didn't have quite as like swelling of a emotional response to it as I did at the time. Like watching it now, it's like I could see why this was my favorite movie when I was in high school. I don't know if I have that same reaction to it now. Well, I, I mean, I'm with you. I watched it a lot in high school, early college. I've probably seen this movie, I don't know, 10 times. And um, I will say when the party scene starts, there's still this like inner child inside of me that is so giddy. You know, when you've seen everything before and then this party starts and you know it's going to get fucking crazy. And there's like a little part of me that is so excited about that. And that hasn't really gone away. And the movie has to keep topping itself too, right? Like... It shocks you so early with how grotesque it's willing to be that it has to keep like upping the stakes. So when that party hits, it has to be so inventive with every gag to keep you interested. Otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, most zombie movies are just zombies just sort of like over and over again. And that's my issue with them is like I find a lot of zombie movies boring because of that. Yeah, and this one you have like a zombie baby in a blender, like <laughs> spinning round and round. You have this woman with like a light bulb stuck in the back of her skull, like so cool, catching fire, and uh, the lawnmower gore is like really over the top. And it all culminates in bringing it back around to the mother, which I really appreciate that it at least ties it up in a bow. Where this woman who he's been trying to like keep her awfulness contained to the house becomes this like dinosaur creature. <laughs> whose womb cracks open like an egg to suck him back in because that's what she wanted to do the whole film. (laughs) And then to like break free of her control over him, he has to like literally kill her, like destroy this zombie dinosaur mother creature from the inside and breaks out of the womb in a very literal physical way and then (laughs) walks off with his new love interest who's the mother's been getting in the middle of the two of them. And then the credits roll. There's no denouement. There's no like back to normal. Beautiful, man. You're just sort of like left with this, like, (laughs) what did I just see feeling? (laughs) And yeah, that's what I love out of a movie. I'm I'm thinking of like trashier stuff, like truth or dare or escape room or like recent examples um, where the, the stakes are kind of like familiar in like a genre movie kind of way. But it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the last minute where it just gets like globally scaled. I think Color Out of Space from this year is another good example. Mm. I recently watched that too. It's very good. I don't even know if I would call those movies my favorite films overall, but that is my mm-hmm. favorite type of story structure. Yeah, I mean, especially with, I agree with Brittany, like zombie movies tend to bore me because there is no ratcheting up of the violence. Like... Mm-hmm. When you've seen a zombie rip someone's intestines out in the first 30 minutes and then it doesn't up the ante later in the film, it, you know, it just seems kind of mundane and banal. But like this movie and I think society is a good example, too, where the gore mm. like keeps going to the next level and then you don't think it can go any further. And then it does. And you're just so elated that it actually went there. And so I, I think that's like a great kind of ending the level of grossness just keeps ramping up like at this rapid pace where you're like oh is it going to but it's not going too fast it's just like you know could it get worse it keeps getting worse it keeps getting grosser and it keeps going and going and going until you get to this you know awesome ending where it's this thing you never could have dreamt up in your life (laughs) 
and you never thought would have happened ever. I do think, Brandon, though, like, it isn't as far removed from, like, a being there. <laughs> like, in the sense that, like you said, it ties it up in a bow. I think great endings have to touch on the themes and recontextualize them in a way to make you think about the movie as, like, a whole. And Dead Alive does that, too, with the literally, like, the mother forcing him back into the womb and then he has to like break out of his mother's womb to be with the one he loves. That is the themes of the movie throughout put in like its most perfect, goriest form. So, you know, it isn't like as thought provoking, I guess, as like a being there, but I think that is the key to a good ending in general. I think it's just not as delicate, right? Cause like being there and perfume have these like very quiet moments at the end that leave you with a lot to think about with this like sort of pause where you're like really digging into like what the image means and like in your own interpretations of it. Whereas like brain dead takes that title very seriously where it just like batters your brain. (laughs) Like there's just no room for you to have any thoughts because the movie just completely assaults your senses So at the end, yeah, it is thematically like coming full circle in a way that I think is very fun. If you're going to go there, you might as well go there, which I think is why I like this in genre movies in particular. It's like if you're going to like play with those themes, you might as well push them to as extreme as you could. But it doesn't have that quiet moment of reflection, which I kind of appreciate. I think that's what I like. I like that it ends at its loudest, most brain pummeling moment. Mm -hmm. And then the credits just roll and you're like, whoa, that's it. No, I like I like that a lot too cuz it it's like all right, like that's it. Like <laughs> I'm sa- I was you know, like you're satisfied. You know, I don't want to know about like I don't care if he gets married to this chick or whatever happens after. Like that was just great and I love the, the abrupt ending after that. And maybe the difference there is like one like you said ties it up in a bow where you can walk away feeling complete. You know, like that was a complete story and then Another style of ending is one where you leave with all these questions, you know? Yeah. And like in Brain Dead, you walk away like that was a movie. It set out to do this thing with these themes. It did it perfectly. And I can walk away and not really think about it and just appreciate it. Whereas, you know, a perfumer being there, you have lingering questions that might carry you on throughout the day. So I think they're both valid, but I think maybe that's kind of what we've honed in on. Yeah. And I think the the brain dead effect is like a, it puts you in a stupor. You're sort of like stumbling away from it. Like it doesn't bring you back down to like a base level. Actually, you know what I would put sort of in the middle of those two things is like mother from a couple oh. years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how you walk away from mother just feeling completely stupefied, <laughs> but yes. the ending of it's actually pretty <laughs> quiet. It does bring everything full circle, but it's not like a very like loud ending. I think that's like a kind of a good middle ground between the two types of movies we're talking and about. And that was, you know, as I said, my favorite movie from that decade. So I 100% agree with you where, yeah, just the experience of it. Yeah, you're just like drained by the end. But then you also have these lingering philosophical thoughts or whatever that can kind of last for weeks after you've seen the movie. So it does a good job of doing both. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you. But yeah, I think these were all like three unique choices like none of these movies were the same and i would say they all have a valid point for being a great ending 
I had also put Robert Altman's Three Women in that conversation as well. The ending mm. twists in a sort of way that's familiar if you've ever seen Bergman's persona before. It's not like an entirely new thing, but it is like playing with that same, like leaving you with a lot of questions and this like kind of stupor feeling. And that is our movie of the month, as we mentioned at the top of the episode. And I'll, I'll put the link to that conversation in the show notes if you want to read more about that film in particular. And this is a weekly show again. Uh, so we'll be back next <laughs> week. I'll be talking to Boomer about Shirley, the uh, <gasps> oh, I new Josephine Decker movie. Oh, I love Shirley. I really liked it. I'm excited to hear you guys talk about that. I have not seen it yet, so I'm excited as well. Okay, it's You will love it. It's so good. So good. Yeah, I actually just started reading um, a book of her short stories after I saw that that movie. Shirley I, Jackson? Yeah. It's like one of those things that I wish I would have found when I was younger. I, I really love her stuff. The movie's very good, too. I'm always down for Elizabeth Moss completely breaking down her uh, <laughs> psyche for my entertainment. Yes. Whatever she gave in Your Smell last year, it's like that, but way amped up, too. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Speaking of movies that just assault your senses. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's another one with a good ending. There's a lot. It was hard. It was hard to kind of choose. Like I was on the fence between Perfume and um, The Vanishing. Ooh, that's a really good choice. The ending of that to me, it's it was more unsettling. I guess the, probably the most unsettling ending in a movie. So that I'm like, I think Perfume was the most memorable to me. And the one that when I think of endings, I think of that one automatically. So I went with Perfume. I think Vanishing, like, it's such a great ending that that's all people talk about when they talk mm-hmm. about that movie. Um, which right. is kind of a shame because the whole thing is just a great It's thriller. such a good movie. Yeah, I think that's up there too. Speaking of good endings, this is the ending of the podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, no surprises. No surprise endings. Wouldn't it be cool if we were like, all right, and here's like a part two or... Here's another 30 minutes where we go live with Alan Rickman in his uh, provincial oh, French house. Please, please, God. <laughs> That's all I want. I would do anything for that at this point in my life. <laughs> please. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>